propose that this podcast, which is with uh, our friend Frank Gillette from Forrester, be on things that he's seen, failed business models. Since, um, and Frank will reintroduce himself because this is a fresh podcast and people may or may not have heard our prior award-winning, riveting podcast riveting. in support of the MIT Enterprise Forum and the Connected Things event on April 5th. Hmm. So, um, so there's, yeah, wait, yeah, who, who's in the room? Oh, yeah, yeah. So I'm Dave Pausner. I'm Mark Thurman. Frank. I'm Frank Gillette. And tell us a little about yourself because we've been now done, well, we've now done 11 podcasts. Right. So people either don't want to know who we are or they know who we are, 11 and a half. Yeah. Right. So I'm a VP and Principal Analyst at Forrester Research uh, in our CIO practice, which really should be called a digital leader practice. Yep. I um, and I look at uh, technology uh, disruption and change that drives business disruption. Um, and we focus on helping our clients understand uh, the potential to change and improve how they serve customers. Oh, okay. Is, is it true that the phrase CIO is still career is over? Or? <laughs> um, Sorry. You know, it so depends on the structure of your company and the orientation of the person. Okay. Right? If it's all about efficiency, cost savings, cost center, yeah, it's pretty rough. Mm. Um, but what we see is... Uh, and in our client base is a bunch of them are now acting as chief digital officers, you know, mm. uh, innovation centers, um, all that stuff. Um, and uh, they are in a much stronger position to drive change and business leadership within their company. So is uh, C CDO a better title than CIO? Well, we're convinced the CDO thing is ephemeral and will go okay. away. Um, but basically... Because everything's digital. Yeah. It, the um, So... Companies that go digital will essentially elevate and remake the CIO probably into some, I think, a remaking of the name, the idea, even if they don't change the name. Um, but ultimately, many things about a company become digital, many companies become software companies, and so it just becomes part of what you have to do. In a sense, many of the leaders have to become digital aware. Why so, is CIO any less relevant now than it was? Other than the fact it's old and we're all bored with it. Why is that concept? <laughs> None of Frank's clients are bored with their titles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, why, yeah, what's wrong with CIO? It still seems relevant. It was a pejorative CIO careers over. That's right, right. Part, well, yeah. it, it, it so depends on the scope and who you're reporting to. You know, if you're reporting to That's the, always true the, in every right. job. Correct. Let's look at the so, cabinet for the, in the White House. Mm -hmm. Let's not. Oh, sorry. <laughs> politics. No politics. Um, so it, it, it's just all about the scope that the CIO embraces, right? Um, if uh, you're trying to sweat and reduce the existing costs and outsource everything, it right. just that's not very interesting for, for most companies. So you're a procurement officer at that point. Yeah, I mean, with, with some sense of how it works. In, but much more interesting is those who understand a lot about the business and can bring ideas to the business and in turn can also um, translate uh, business opportunity and requirements into uh, things that can ex be executed within the CIO's organization, but in fact across the company. Because with a lot of technology change, you can't do it without also updating the business practices and the org structure right. and the work processes and all that. I have never understood how Forrester works, nor I assume IDG, which if uh, they're I, still around, IDG, are... IDG, yes, and IDC is within IDG. Okay. IDG is the publishing company. IDC is the market research company. Right. So, but how, so generically, how do market research firms in the uh, technology space operate? How do they get paid? 
So um, there's a wide variety of business models, but basically there's three very big well-known players, uh, Gartner, IDC, and Forrester. Yep. Um, and then there are many others globally, um, but just from the, what I can explain is what Forrester, a public company, does. So um, we sell syndicated research, which means you buy a seat and you get to read uh, a bunch of qualitative reports that analysts like me write. And with that seat, you also get the privilege of being able to um, do unlimited uh, air quotes for those of you uh, following along on the radio, um, phone call or email inquiries of 30 minutes apiece where you can get your question to the right analyst and get a response. Uh, so, so these are the reports that when I'm searching the internet are about 350 bucks there. I can usually read the abstract and a little more, and then if I pay 350 I can then see the rest of it. Yes, like the PDF that Mark is, is uh, waving at you. Untangle your IoT strategies. How long is that? Um, these, our reports are you know, 10, 20 pages max. Okay. So, this one's so uh, 13 ours, pages. Ours are designed um, to be read by very busy executives. Um, so you should be able to read them by skimming the bolded headlines. You should be able to get the gist by looking at uh, the graphics. And so figures. these are largely written on spec, I guess would be the term, which is you write them, you hope people will be interested in them, like books. Well, because we are, uh, because Forrester sells an annual subscription, we write the research that we think is most relevant and important for our uh, audience base, which is about two-thirds enterprises and about one-third vendors selling to those enterprises. Right. So that's crudely true in terms of um, both revenue and client count. Um, so uh, about, and then different numbers, but the same approximate ratios, about two thirds of our revenue is that, and then one third is so-called one-time revenues. You know, for those of you who are sticklers for numbers, go read our public financial statements. But the one-time revenue is events, um, it's um, consulting, so you can ask to work with an analyst or ask for custom research be done on your behalf. And so then in that case, you're paying by the project or by the hour. Um, and that's about one third of our revenues. And about two thirds is from this subscription, which also includes some other uh, data survey products and other stuff. And just without getting into details you can't get into, what is a typical enterprise pay for a subscription? Is it by the seat? Yeah, it's a seat license model to read the research or to, for access to the survey data. Um, What's the seat typically cost? Thousand? No, no, no. Uh, seats are like thirty, forty thousand dollars for one year for one person. Is that one for the, uh, just for all services or for a particular swim lane? Um, there, I believe now it's one wide swim lane. And yeah. in the past, it had been two. One that was okay. focused more on CMOs and their organization, different roles in their organization. One on CIOs and their organization, and then uh, vendors buy a package that spans both. But I believe now we're offering an integrated package. Um, so just round big numbers, tens of thousands of dollars to read the research, to have the analysts uh, the opportunity to ask analyst questions. Um, and then I think there's a premium version that puts you in a, in a uh, leadership board with colleagues in similar jobs at other companies whom you can then ex have direct peer exchange with. And then there's an executive programs version on top of that where you have a personal sort of advisor who's done your job uh, who works with a handful of those kind of clients. What does a Bloomberg terminal cost per year? I don't know, honestly. It's a lot. Probably in the another 10x oh, times I think it's in the hundreds of thousands yeah. a year. Okay. 
because it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's getting real-time data. Yeah. It's, a, it's a different... Plus and yeah. it's a different And, and our surveys data. are done once a year, so we, yeah. we don't have anything like yeah. uh, that Bloomberg data. So I can't speak to the models of other companies because I haven't worked there, um, but I believe that uh, those three very big firms have crudely the same idea, but many of them, you know, you buy sections of their portfolio. I think you buy, like, I think IDC, one of, one of, the, one of your unnamed competitors can buy, you can buy an individual report. Yeah. And it's the, I remember looking at pricing them. Yeah, they're 300, 500, 1500, 2500. Yeah. Okay. You know, for a report because it's yeah. not only it, it's the rights to not only read it and print it, but to be able to use the data distribute it. and distribute it like in your firm or if I was going to give a speech on yeah. some grand thing, so, I would say according to Forrester Research, I, yeah, if you step way way back, the models look similar and when you get up close, they start to look rather different. And is it more than buzzword level? Understanding of what's going on? No, their stuff's. I, I, his stuff's really good. Like, <laughs> yes, I mean the. the, the Sorry. Sorry. Again, we're plug. focusing on sort of the things that executives need to understand, so we have to be able to um, provide enough concrete examples, enough okay. concepts I can turn around and apply it. Okay. Okay. Other firms that I've worked with, especially in the IoT space, yeah. just by not by contrast, but just to fill it out a bit, will give you unit numbers, which is not necessarily what they're doing. It's not what we focus but, on. But there's a need if you're- if Market you're, sizes? How big is the market? How many yeah. units? What are your competitors doing? Yeah. How many, like if you're, if you're a product manager building a sensor-based or an IoT product, you wanna know how many uh, 4G modules are out there, because that's how you size your market. Uh, or how many yeah. accelerometers are out there, or what, you know, in the semiconductor world, you need to know what components are available and what the penetration is like. Okay. Right. Is we that have, a fair way to put it? Correct. We have, a, we have a tiny part of our business that does some limited forecasts of specific technology markets. It started out sizing things on the consumer market side, and they've done a few things now in specific enterprise products. And we're discussing whether and how to size some aspect of IoT spend. And one of the interesting challenges and discussions we're having is, how do you do that in a useful way um, because it's such a broad, messy uh, concept. So here's the site. So it's quantitative. Well, and distinctive. Yeah, right. But so we have this whole sort of um, analytics insights kind of business that's about surveys as well as forecasts and, you know, um, sentiment analysis and panels. And so there's right. a bunch of things we can do. There's more variety and depth on the consumer side, but we have a bunch of great stuff on what enterprise spend yeah. is like. Enterprise well. and industrial is a big sweet spot, as you and I were talking about informally so in, in, in IoT. And I, what I would say is folks like me that are working in a technology management standpoint, our, our company, or role, I sometimes just want to know how many of these damn modules are out there. Yeah. How, what's the penetration like in Europe? Or what are, are, are 3G networks, uh, mm. I mean, I'm, I'm making up examples, are 3G networks still prevalent in uh, Africa if I'm trying to build a, a, a pan-European or a pan-African product, do I have to build five SKUs or just three SKUs? Those are the questions that that you know we look to firms like like Forrester or others or market yeah. research firms. So does Forrester research firms. ever write about failure? No, but that's a, <laughs> this is a really so again segue. That was the best segue we've had yet. It is woven through it's the stuff we look at: how to avoid failure, as well as examples of failure you'd want to avoid. Yeah, yeah. So, so let's talk. Yeah, let's, let's talk, talk about some examples. We're good at failure. <laughs> well, no, we're not good at. So we're good at so our, our podcast, and I'm sure you, I'm sure you've heard all ten. Uh, already, yeah. uh, we'll make sure you get a free copy. Well, I think Frank had to listen to them all. Mm. He's endured one as a participant <laughs> earlier. Um, so what we're going in, we're looking at individual companies and entrepreneurs that have had some challenges that resulted 
in uh, less than positive results. Let's yeah, put it that way. But they were I, I was the first victim with my company. So uh, which one are you referring Air, to? Airprint Networks, which is a company I started and raised failed? money. And have you what? failed at others you haven't told us about? Uh, I'm failing right now in this whole podcast <laughs> here. But um, <laughs> and then we we had um, the prior fun, uh, podcast was. Um, gentleman that was an executive at a company called Knarka, hmm. which uh, was doing stuff in the solar field. Um, we, had, uh, we had a guy who was a basement tinkerer hmm. who um, came up with uh, quite a few inventions, which are different than coming up with businesses, hmm. but it turned out that he was able to make quite a bit of money off these. People would track him down to to acquire the intellectual property and eventually mm. he turned one of these inventions into a business, uh, raised, you know, not a, not an insignificant sum and um, the economy changed or something changed and the business failed. So it was very exciting about it. Uh, also, it turned out to be about LEDs or uh, right. television LEDs. Right, right. So we've got a series on that. We did Polaroid, I think Mark may have mentioned. Um, but anyway, so the, uh, the interest, what we're interested in as much as we joke around hmm. is not just specific um, stories of failure hmm. um, from which people can learn. But I think there's a background interest sort of philosophically, I'll argue, in the need for failure or the, if not the need. When the, they talk about failing fast, you know, there's a whole, you know, MVP from a product management standpoint that you want to fail fast mm-hmm. for all the obvious reasons. But yeah, I, and I'm a believer that when a company fails, it's also a story of resilience and persistence. It's really about learn fast, That's right? right. Yeah. Which comes from, you know, putting yourself out there and finding out what happens. That's right. Yeah, so you, you must have failure stories. And they, they're, they're, you're not, you know, there's well, nothing specific, just it's, digging it's, the failure it, in any way. Right. It's so um, it's not an overt focus, but now you've got me like self-conscious, so maybe I'll like keep a little running short list. But one, <laughs> in the IoT space, uh, there's a bunch of interesting observations, right? The the beginning of the noise around here was, oh, we need a software platform for Internet of right. Things because, you know, all these widgets have special needs and so right. you need special software and, you know, embedded software was really wonky and hard, so you need a software platform. Yeah, and there's now um, a billion software platforms. Well, right. People with very broad interpretations of software platforms are writing lists that are 300 product long. Mm-hmm. But the the bottom line I saw is that the, the market's mistake was thinking that people needed platforms. So the mm-hmm. fail was saying, oh, like you need a landscape on which to put your developers and then conceive of uh, how to write the software and create the business value and all that stuff. And I, you know, GE was the most conspicuous um, With one to, to run into this. Yeah, and, and it's predicts, predicts. Yeah, and, it's, and it's still out there. Oh yeah, no, no, no. So GE, I think, suffered um, unnecessarily, but it was big and visible, so it got a lot of attention. Um, that that I think is a little unfair. It just has to do with how big they are. But look, the bottom line is the techies said, "Oh, you need a platform," and then you know the customer will figure out what to do. And the and, and the reality is, most business people don't know what to do. And what is interesting about the IoT space is it's not the techies buying the product, right? It's the business people who just want to get something done. They either want to put IoT in their product or they want to use IoT-enabled assets to run their business better. And they're not techies in either case. They want turnkey applications. And that was the big mistake. So turning turning the clock back to something I had heard of, there were smart devices in the industrial space 
and I want to say Field Bus Foundation laid the foundation for this, but I think that was a, a, a communications protocol. Yeah. But there were, but for the sort of average um, person out there, uh, the layperson, factories beginning quite some time ago had sensors in in the apparatus that run the factory, whether they were the the thermometers that measure temperatures or the mm -hmm. heaters, et cetera, et cetera. Machine control. Yeah. Machine control. VLCs, programmable logic controllers. Yep. Yep. Correct. Been around for a long time. Yep. And then life got, systems. Right, got better in the 80s and 90s to mm -hmm. the point where something that looked more like the Internet of Things was beginning to occur at the factory level. Right. And there were platforms that went with that, but as I understood it, those were critical proprietary flat platforms to bring together the devices that you would be equipping in this given factory, petroleum factory, right. or, or the like. Right, right. So, is that not the case? Were those platforms not necessary, or were those they were necessary at the time? So, um, how about now? Yeah, keep going. Yep. <laughs> so, early sensors are analog, right? They spit out their results based on varying the voltage of the or the amperage of the electricity, probably the voltage. Um, and so, those are analog systems. Um, you know, they were great at, at making the needle on a dial move. Um, but there was no data in the digital sense that we know today, right? So that when the sensors move, it, uh, when the sensor got a result, it moves a needle and you write it down on a clipboard. Right? Very, very early, yeah. Right, right. No, but even later, I mean, uh, a lot of those systems were analog. Then they, they became essentially proprietary digital systems yep. with earliest forms of digital, which is often what's called embedded. Right. And, and, and in embedded, you have to create a custom display and, you know, it's, it's, it's like the... Um, uh, old VCRs and fax machines, it's full of buttons with, that have dedicated hard functions and simple LCD or LED displays and they're just obtuse to figure out how to use because they couldn't do anything at reasonable cost uh, that, that would make it easy to use. So it's, um, the, 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 there's a huge crossover point with the rise of the smartphone. Um, approximately 2007 with the iPhone because now you have a general purpose display and interface. You have the demonstration of outside a personal computer of a, a great touchable user programmable interface and the rise of, of these operating systems uh, whether it's uh, Linux or Android or iOS that really gave us a vision and a model of how to interact with things um, in a much more intuitive and straightforward way. Um, and because everyone began to have these in their pockets, you began to have a remote control interface as well as a model for a dedicated uh, interface. But in the process, what's less obvious to non-techies is all the underlying uh, digital technologies became standardized. That's right. So, so now uh, we still have all these proprietary systems, whether it's in building management or in factories or in uh, mod bus or, or stuff in automobiles. Um, those exist and they're not going to go away because of the legacy, the install base, and the skills. So now what we're doing is building digital adapters into those systems to to interconnect them to the digital universe that's growing up in this standardized way out of the web and the internet and now smartphones. So, so uh, just to illustrate his last point, in, in with respect to a car, cars after... Uh, uh, from what? 1996, the ODB. Oh, yeah, so from 96 on, have a thing under the dash. It's a plug. A diagnostic a port. A diagnostic port that now uh, many, many companies have, have, have created devices that tie into that and add not only connectivity, so you can turn your car into a hot Wi-Fi hotspot, but also add the capability to go read what was normally proprietary to the uh, mm -hmm. uh, car mechanic and be able to do something meaningful with the data, like, right. you know, 
predict whether your car is about to fail or whether there's some other so, issues. And so let's illustrate. There's even an interesting way to approach that. So there's this only became one. an IoT uh, podcast all of a sudden, but anyway, <laughs> I'm all well, for it. So, so let, let's take another example of failure, right? So those diagnostic ports were designed to, uh, to allow mechanics to interact with the information for emissions. Uh, and then Smarty Pants came along and said, well, maybe I can, you know, instead of a cable into a big machine in the mechanic shop, I'll put a, a dongle, wonderful right. technical term that makes you kind of worry yeah, a little bit. Yeah. It's a little uncomfortable. Engineers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Engineers are in but the anyway, it, it's, a, it's a thing that leaches off the power that yeah. comes out of that port yeah. um, and, and uses, it, it uh, then creates connectivity, Bluetooth or Wi-Fi, to your smartphone. Right. So the first uh, devices, um, communicated with one and only one application. In some cases, they were even dedicated things, you know, handheld versions of those giant machines the mechanics had. Right. But people pretty soon took advantage of the smartphones. But most of them were single purpose. So, you know, you buy your, uh, you buy insurance from Progressive, pay, um, pay as you go driving, or um, what are they, uh, there's another term, oh, usage-based insurance. Yes, UBI. And they give you a snapshot dongle and you stick it in your car and every time that you go to get your emissions tested the guy unplugs it and leaves it in the console of your car and you have to plug it back in yeah. um, <laughs> um, but you can only interact with it through the progressive app but now Vinly V-I-N-L-I an automatic a company that was bought by the satellite radio guys uh, by Sirius Thank you, Sirius XM now, I believe. We've been buying a lot of Telmax companies in the last yep. five years. Yeah, those guys said, we'll do you one better because if you, what if you wanted two different applications, you've only got one of the EB2 port and you can't be like switching them out all the time. So they said, put in our gadget and we'll let anyone write an app that works with our gadget. So, and there may be others who do this, but Vinley and Automatic say, hey, you know, don't go out and fund your own hardware and get involved with all that mess. Use our hardware, and your customer can, you know, use many, many other apps on our platform. Right. So the platforms. Right. So the, what they did that was very clever. So we went from fixed proprietary platforms that were single purpose to a third party coming in and saying, "Hey, I'm going to create a platform on which others can build apps um, and uh, enable that." Now, if we flip that around to the IoT software platform. Um, we're at that early realm where the techies say, oh, we need a platform, and they're technically correct, but then they gave it to end-user business customers and said, now you can write your app. Here you go. Fat <laughs> chance. So I think what I'm hearing is that the difference between what I'm thinking and what you're saying hmm. suggests that the IoT is, that IoT hmm. is more reporting, logging and reporting based, hmm. and less control based. The, um, it, it could be a life cycle thing because Certainly, the first step in, in value of IoT is getting the information, right? Everybody gets right. hung up on, let's connect and collect. Yep. But until you actually start looking at the data and, and turning it into behavior change, it's a complete snooze. But yet, you have to go through that. And so, we're very much well, still early in the life cycle. But that gets of, me back to platforms, which mm -hmm. is, I understood that the reason platforms were of value, the proprietary platforms, is at least in the, and I'll say SCADA space though, yeah. I didn't use that term as much when I knew about this, but in the control, the factory control space, yeah. those platforms were A, certainly critical for reporting, but B, were also critical for control because the devices themselves, though sensorized, 
typically didn't have the wherewithal, the processing power, right. and certainly not the code, so, to interact in a meaningful way, in any autonomous way. So those early solutions, I would argue, were not platforms. They were hard-coded solutions yeah. that solved a very specific narrow set of things and had no ability to do anything else, whether it was the end customer particularly, but even the vendor had a hard time you know, adapting and evolving them to do new things. And so they're very closed, rigid systems. So um, uh, the you know the lessons that we've learned in, in 20, 30 plus years of the digital era mm -hmm. is the more uh, sort of open and or transparent because they're not always completely open. Yeah. The platform uh, and the bigger the ecosystem, the more interesting things that happen, That's right. and the and the greater the economic opportunity. So here's, let me just add into that. I was just jotting down so I didn't have another senior moment. The notion of platform is, is I mean, it's, it's segmented. So you have platforms that are just, I want, the, I want to know if the machine's on or off, you know, control platforms. Hmm. There's data ingest capabilities. There's, you know, connectivity platforms. So I've been in the telco space for a long, long time. We have what we call sim lifecycle management. Hmm. I want to manage fleets of things, turn them on, turn them off, and then figure out where they are. I have a minimal set of parameters I want to I want to watch, but you know, is, is there a rogue data alert? Is the thing in the wrong spot? Then you have enablement platforms, which may or may not control. I used to use the example of a bucket truck. Hmm. So I could control the bucket remotely to make yeah. it move, you know, actualize this, the thing. There's uh, predictive and prescriptive maintenance and analysis type platforms. Uh, our friends at SAP have one. They have many of them. Mm -hmm. They have a vehicle insight package called Vehicle Insight. Then there's this notion of uh, immutable storage, uh, which again our friends at Wasabi are certainly building up. But mm. you know uh, uh, our friends at Amazon are very good at data ingest. And then you know once the data is in, there's no data egress without paying a relatively large fee. So I got but your data just for the bandwidth to get it out. Exactly. Oh come on, just buy the tractor trailer truck. It's cheaper. So your your point, <laughs> Mark, is so that so the notion of platform, yeah. uh, you know, taxonomy matters not only, which is why I always argue the point on IoT, what's an IoT device and what isn't, but also uh, describing just saying it's an IoT platform. That means nothing at this point. Is is kind of the point I'm trying to make. It's it's just you know. So let's go back to what the. I mean, to the extent anybody listening to this, actually, even to the extent that we're able to figure out what thread carries this through, <laughs> I'm still lost. What is the failure of platforms? Going back to your your statement, seem to suggest to me. So, yes. So rather than go, so we've been wandering around a lot with the term platform. If we zoom in on the how the word platform's been used in the IoT context, yeah. it seemed to be to say, oh, there's this thing called an IoT software platform, and you need that in order to be able to do anything interesting uh, with Internet of Things. In other words, to, to make sense of the data, to, to uh, take business action. To, to even uh, access the data. Right. It, what, what we see and have been guiding our clients on is there's quite a variety or segmentation of IoT software platforms. You know, some have been designed very much to be in the home and sort of in the context of an ISP and managing things in the home. Right. Um, others um, have been designed very much around what we call connectivity management, yep. um, which is managing telco-connected devices, right. uh, managing and securing telco-connected devices, period, but not necessarily doing uh, all the data extraction, the software application platform, all right. that stuff. So in the, in the context of IoT, uh, there are levels of the platform, and there are different uh, they apply to different market segments. 
The failure is that the, everyone thought the big rush was to sell the platform. And what is happening now is the market is pivoting and realizing, no, 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 in many cases we need to sell solutions built on platforms. Because the business buyers, the people who have the money here are not the IT people, it's the people responsible for designing things, whether they're one-time things like a cruise ship or a hotel, or mass production things. Those designers need a platform for the software that they to help them put IoT Where in. Where are the designers located? Not in the real world, but are they at the They're the, product, they're the product engineers, they're the uh, customer experience designers, they're the industrial engineers. How does this differ from a proprietary platform? The, all I'm hearing you say is, we need a general purpose platform that can interact with these devices which are now mature enough in terms of product life cycle that they deal with HTTP protocols and standard protocols they have addresses, MAC addresses or something, and there's a platform that knows how to interact with them and can do whatever you want with them. Right. What is it that you want to do? Do it. And if you don't want to do it, the vendor will do it and they'll start looking proprietary again. So it's a little more complex than that. And if we're focused on the failure, um, the, the failure, so a couple of failures. One it was trying to market completely general purpose ones to multiple audiences. Yeah. And one of the things I'm saying is, no, no, no. Okay. There, for example, the folks um, uh, at Zively that were part of Log Me In until Google bought them, right. they said, you know what, our audience is not uh, the industrial people trying to figure out how to manage all the widgets in their factory that are already IoT connected. Um, they decided that they were going to focus on enabling people making refrigerators um, and other home products and, and some classes of simpler commercial products to with the specific set of software solutions they needed to quickly uh, light up the devices and manage them in the field of customers and learn what their customers right. are doing with them. Over and Wi-Fi in, that, in their particular case. Correct, yeah. right. They didn't particularly enable the cellular part, um, not that they couldn't have. But the, um, so they did build a platform, at, but they focused on trying to make it very quick for non-software developers who, you know, product people to understand oh, here's how I work with all these damn radios, modules, sensors, and all the data coming off of them that I'm putting in my product, and in particular, how to deal with the information coming back and how to update the, Did the stuff. Did they used to call that object-oriented programming? <laughs> that, that is a part of this. So, um, so, that, so, so Zively um, realized they needed to build solutions for product people, yeah. um, but they used a platform to do it. Um, if you look at the, um, and, and this is what I see SAP and Oracle doing, they, I mean, SAP's made some platform noises, Oracle's really stepped right through, and they didn't make the platform mistake, partly because they got to the party so late. Yeah. Um, they instead said, no, 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 we've got solutions for, and there's five things, and I can't rattle them all off the top of my head, but, you know, supply chain management, yeah. um, preventive maintenance. So now they're describing things that, a business operations person might want to have. So you would buy one of, say, the uh, preventative preventive maintenance. maintenance yeah. yeah. You would buy that module or that package. Yeah. You would program it up accordingly that it knew where where to get the data for all that. That's right. You introduce it to your devices. Yep. And, well, and just yep. to be clear, this is this is somebody in a business, not the product company. This is 
you you would buy this if you were already an Oracle shop yep. and you had a bunch of widgets in your factory and you wanted to ingest data from all of and, them. And, and you probably had a board call where someone said, you're using IoT, aren't you? And then <laughs> right. the CEO goes up mute and says, what's an IoT? And then gets back off. Oh. Yes, of course, we're okay, the leaders. So, so there, so there is some of that, but it's also coming from other vectors. This particular solution would then allow you to get sort of standard reporting on what uh, which of your equipment, pieces of equipment are likely to fail based on whatever the measures are. Yeah, although That's I'm right. not hearing the reporting language used so much. I mean, and these interfaces are really designed for, you know, the maintenance engineer. Um, and, and it depends on the solution because they're all over the place. But um, there is a, an entire class of solutions now around preventive maintenance. And what these guys get is a picture of the um, uh, performance of the individual spinning item. Um, and the likelihood of failure. So some of the stuff uh, I saw um, this week, um, you know, there was a, you know, we estimate you have two weeks before this breaks, you know, you have eight hours, really specific kind of instructions, but that was a pretty advanced AI solution and that was from a, a company called SenseI. So, ah, so to like, the like I'm your... So to continue coming <laughs> back to failure, which is at least for there's for lots of failure in preventive maintenance. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. But <laughs> is it sense, sense I like this? Like your eyeball or uh, I, the letter I? Um, uh, sense E-Y-E. So it's cool. sense with a Y-E on the end. So to what extent is what we're talking about as failure here, to mm. what extent is it really the natural evolution of a marketplace? A marketplace yes. where the individual vendors early on wanted to had proprietary solutions because that was the only way they could ensure they would get every dollar out of an installation. Pre-IoT buzzword, um, they built proprietary solutions because that's what everyone did then. Yes. It, there was, you know, to my mind, it wasn't a failure. It's just what was possible in their time frame. And then the whole, th as, as the web came up and then mobile kicked in, the whole notion of digital and technology has been transformed. And so these guys now face a fundamental reset um, but because they have such, at least on the industrial side, such long-lived products and such a big install base, what they have to build is is interfaces to that existing stuff. But of course, they're also rethinking the fundamental new versions so, of the product. So let's go back to factory control. Yeah. Uh, whether it's GE and I don't know Predix, but um, and well, Siemens any, is, yeah, is they all have a solution. All, they all do. What are they now? So they all still have their fundamental proprietary platform, whatever names they go by, mm -hmm. and yet I assume the impact of the industry on them is they have to open up, inter they've opened up interfaces yeah. to it that both the customer can but, use and other vendors can yeah, I mean, glom on. But, but what's going on here is those old, very specific systems like programmable logic controllers and factories are are in such a specific market yes. that it's not even part of the conversation. Uh -huh. There's no notion of transforming old to new. There's how do we build a digital interface to this little realm? Yes. Um, so that is happening, but it's not a big part of the conversation. The the it's just sort of taken for granted. It's so when when an SAP or an Oracle or an Augury or a Sensei says, hey, we want to uh, bring in a preventive maintenance software solution. It's like, you know, we've done all the coding to hook up to all your wonky stuff. So we know how to talk to whatever system you've got. We'll just ingest the data and then make the data useful to you. So it's a software solution and uh, you don't need to worry about it. We can just deal with it. How has the IoT revolution then impacted 
the fundamental components within a factory. So mm-hmm. if early factory components were, as you, as you described, an analog device that had a display, mm-hmm. and there would be, uh, whether oh, it was a security needle. guard, oh, no, just mm-hmm. like a needle, yeah. whether it was a security guard or one of the factory engineers would walk around and write down what the needle said, and if the needle was in red, yeah. he presumably Oops, heard she would make pick a up call. the phone and call somebody. Right. Yeah. So that's the early days, and She's then about they, to blow, Jim. It's the way early days, yeah. right? So then that then they became um, digital, yeah, and they might even report their own data to a central control panel. I call it isolated digital, yep, right. And then that was where what I described as proprietary platforms would come into play. They would Probably, let's call them proprietary solutions, really, because they weren't platforms okay, in the way we understand them today. So what? So back then the the individual actuators or sensors mm. were also reasonably proprietary, though yes. there were known standards. And I want to say Field Bus Foundation, but again, I throw that out loosely. Yeah. Um, how has the IoT revolution changed that model, or mm. do you still find proprietary or semi-proprietary solutions at the factory floor level, the equipment level? You're still going to find these these solutions that are either vendor-specific or very industry-specific, I think, for a very long time because of the assets. And it's for people who are outside of manufacturing, let's just point it at big uh, office uh, and residential buildings, right? right? Because the, the building management systems that got put on when those buildings were built last a very long time. I mean, you know, right. when you build a building, you're stuck with the wiring in there um, and figuring out how to do it. Now, you can do some creative stuff to try and say, for the geeks in the audience, to multiplex over the old copper wires and, you know, or actually the, the modern analogy would be uh, networking over power line in right. your home. Yep. So there's some ha- ways you can hack your way around the old infrastructure of a building that doesn't have Ethernet wires, for example. But, but fundamentally, um, there's just some stuff you're not going to go back and fool with. Um, but how about the new? Or, then what's the new equipment look like? Because well, there was a time at which smart field bus devices were new, mm-hmm. and people say, "Oh, I need but it, but power." I think, I think David, what what we're seeing, and I'm, I'll just jump in. I just mm. saw a startup uh, at uh, one of the MIT uh, smart clinics mm. last week. That uh, it's uh, Steam IQ is the yeah. company, and they're they're actually you know clamping a thing onto a steam pipe for lack of a so they're retrofitting they're retrofitting and he's sensing that there's something that occurs within the steam pipe that he's measuring that then creates an alarm and gives you a he's doing acoustics on the I think pipe it's or acoustics. something yeah I, I there I saw two that were similar one was about uh, water mm-hmm. uh, and, and the other was about um, and there's a new steam. company on that light that's got an, an ad from them I think it's called sense and uh, they, that's different but that's but that's same but idea Electric, electric. Yeah. They show you yeah, putting clamps that. around your. That's power. actually a local Boston area company. Right, but same idea. You put yeah. clamps around your power of your house, and it's and, sensing power usage. Right, and they they quickly associate a a, a signature of power usage with, with your with refrigerator or your yes. washing machine right. or whatever. Okay. Well, so what's interesting is compared to old. Uh, so there's the, there was the old power meters, and then there was the smart meters, or, right. uh, which were supposed to be really good because they measured your electricity every 15 minutes. So since, I've talked to the CEO there a couple of yeah. times, I know some people who work there, um, it's measuring the electrical load a thousand times a second. Yeah. It's on a whole other planet. Yeah. And then what they're mm-hmm. doing is matching that signature against um, the, the database they built themselves of what, say, refrigerators and toaster ovens behave like. Yep. And then over time, what they learn. Now, um, I have one of these in my house, and it took it about three weeks to figure out that I had a garage door opener. Now, it's not quite smart enough to realize I have two garage door openers because it can't tell the difference between those two signatures. 
But nonetheless, it can it now records every time a garage door cycles and lets me know. And so you can actually look in the log and go, oh, I can see when my daughter got off to school because I can see the cost the yeah the spike. <laughs> the, well, you can see the the um, toaster oven cycle and then the garage door cycle. <laughs> she got she got her bagel and, and got, got on the, the bicycle car. and. <laughs> okay, so to, to, to try to make sense of all this, what? Ha! Huh, no pun intended. No sense. Ha, ha. So how does all this relate to? The, I'll say the early, I thought they were the early IoT systems, though they weren't called IoT, which is those sensorized factors. Mm. How does what you're seeing in the marketplace relate? And to be clear, I know that we've seen whether it was this, I think I saw the Sense folks pitch when they weren't known as Sense. Mm. Um, early on, four years ago, I yeah. would say, and we just saw one the other day that could have been Sense, but they were four years later. How they Those folks all came out of the factory space that mm. is the industrial, mm -hmm. I, not the industrial, industrial controller space, industrial yeah. controller space. Mm -hmm. They all were at, were at Rockwell or something else yeah. like that. Yep. And now they're doing the home. Mm. So what's the connection between those markets or is this the natural evolution, which is, you know, from, from factory to home and there's more homes. So there's more money. You know, I hear this whole debate about where there's more money um, and which market will be ready sooner. And it, it's just big and messy. There's no simple, clean answers. And so quite honestly, I find the best answer often is to look at someone and so sort of say, what are you good at and where do you sit? Well, from where you're starting from, this is the best opportunity for you. Very few people can start at high speed at any random location they want with, you know, infinite assets. But I, I mean... <laughs> The, the markets I've worked on, it's always been enterprise and industrial. That's where the money is. They're willing to write checks. They're willing to take some technological risk, be early you know, in the market, because the use cases are, again, you know, connected medical equipment, connected you know, assets, connected cars. So you know, these are high value assets and they're looking to you know, make it more efficient and learn something about the operation of their devices. So what's, what's, what we're beginning to see on the enterprise side as well as on the consumer side is experimentations with subscription business models. Right. Now, the first form of subscriptions we've seen are the ones that I think many of us have already bumped into where it's, you know, buy my widget and then pay me um, an ongoing fee for storing your video or sending you alerts or whatever. Um, I, the interesting subscription business model is going to be the one that says, here's the widget. It's included in your monthly fee. Right. Pay me for outcomes. I'm seeing that a lot too, actually. A lot of the uh, SI firms are proposing that as their solution. They'll curate devices and platforms and implement it, and it, they're going to share the outcome. Right. So, that, so it's, right. it's like a reverse rev share, I guess. Well, it, right. It's, it's gain, an it's gain, share. gain sharing is, is gain one sharing. of the terms you hear. But it, what I'm describing specifically is, is the, the Zipcar style model. Um, which 15 years ago, my neighbor Robin Chase founded, oh. which is... Mm, <laughs> That's your neighbor? I guess you were in the wrong house. <laughs> so um, I, I, knew, I knew one of Michael Dell's college roommates who said, nah, this PC stuff, I don't want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> he, they, he's off suicide watch now. <laughs> oh, man. So um, thankfully, I didn't have to go through that. Um, anyway, that model says, why own a car? In, in this particular scenario, you're in an urban area yeah. um, uh, with access to mass transit. Uh, just pay us, you know, 10 bucks an hour and we'll give you the car with gas and insurance and charge you by the hour. Right. Um, and car, so... Car as a service. That's right. Um, as opposed to Uber, which is trip as a service. Right. So... so um, I look at Uber, the model is eBay. It's 
it's uh, uh, an auction between buyers and sellers, in effect. That oh, well, if you have rush hour pricing or whatever that... Uh, uh, surge pricing. Uh, surge pricing, yes. That, that in effect, is a little bit of... <laughs> I mean, that's How does I that relate this. to sensorizing your electrical system or your steam pipes? So, um, where that could go, in my mind, is... Uh, right now, you look at it at what Sense is doing, and it's like, okay, there's about 10% of people who'd love to know what's going on in their house, that their uh, toaster oven flipped on right. and off. But nobody else gives a, a flying F, you know? Right. It's just like, big deal. So, um, the opportunity is that the utility can now better understand how you use electricity. That's right. But how are they going to motivate you to behave differently? And so, here's my theory, and it's all it is. I haven't heard anybody propose this yet. My theory is that where the utility companies could go, or someone will figure out how to front for the utility companies and take on the financial risk, is to charge you outcome-based pricing. I would like so many hot showers and this kind of ambient temperature in my house, and I will pay you 50 bucks, 100 bucks a month, whatever that is. It's, it's UBI, it's usage-based insurance for electricity. Well, it could be usage or it could be outcomes. I want right. this outcome and I pay this, but then the insurance company invests to reduce the cost of delivering you the outcome. Right. And they can figure out what makes sense from them as a system across distribution, generation, and your consumption, where to invest to manage the efficiency of that. And also can say, hey, look, you're our, one of our executive level, you're on our inner circle, you can take a hot shower before eight in the morning. Well, if you <laughs> if you paid for that, but right. but it's a bit where you see this already coming out is the utilities who um, uh, have electric hot water heaters in their system, and uh, you know some some smart person uh, I haven't done this work myself figured out that it was better for the environment to use uh, natural gas hot water heaters despite the fact they're carbon based right. than electric hot water heaters, but different smarty pants said, well look, if you get a supersized, great hot water heater with extra insulation, and let us heat the water at night when electricity is cheap, right. and then dispense the hot water properly mixed with the cold water so that it's at a safe temperature for you during the day, we as an electrical utility can save money. Well, this is no different than you know what, what Nest has theorized and actually have deployed. I have a Nest where you know, I, in fact, I get a little notice on the thing saying, you know, if you allow us to look at your data, yeah. will and allow us to change the temperature up or up or down mm. depending on the, uh, the the season, there's a benefit to you of yeah. some sort. Yeah. Um, and I, I could see that happening with sense too. That's uh, yes. I hadn't well, thought about it in that way. But so the sense the sense guys are really interesting because they're also an event log for your home. Right. Um, and so if you if you look at what they can do, and if you think about how to build that capability into the electrical uh, circuit breaker box. Um, and hook it up to the utility company and think about being an event log, there's a bunch of interesting directions they can go in that have nothing to do with um, helping you, you know, save a little bit of electricity. Well, I, I do have, I have a neighbor with an identical home to mine and, you know, we've compared electric, uh, electric bills and I've actually suggested she get a sense because my bill's X and hers is, you know, X plus, you know, 40% and I said, you've got to find a way to sniff out what the problem is. Well, Sense or Energy Curb is a startup in Austin. Those are two American startups doing this. But I have a list of like eight of these around the world, and it's called load disaggregation, okay. or there's another buzzy word for it. But anyway. so, do you, to what extent do you need? Okay, so I don't know. It's I, I know we've kind of we've kind of uh, migrated away. Well, yeah, from but, but on this one particular point, what I hear you saying is that by 
sensorizing the household, and this would be true in a business as well, you, and I don't think big data matters, though it never hurts, you now can understand usage by an individual and usage patterns in an in industry or in a, a metropolitan region, mm. and you can now um, at least suggest to people or to businesses what they can do to minimize the cost of energy, mm -hmm. or to the extent you can not just sensorize them, but you have actuators that you can right. control, right. and that you can work with the equipment manufacturers, you can now reduce electrical costs overall. I'm saying again, the case yeah. of power consumption. Right, well, I'm, I'm forgetting the name of the um, uh, local company and even the buzzword for what it was, but basically they would go out and find uh, big uh, commercial electricity consumers like, say, grocery stores and hook, uh, it was called demand management. Um, and the business was telling the grocery stores, hey, you know, if you'll let us control, say, when your refrigerators cycle on and off, your freezer cases, we'll give you discounts on your energy. And then they'd turn around and tell the energy companies, hey, we can sell you that so much, you know, megawatt capacity so that when you're, like, uh, hitting the expensive energy zone, we can, like, cut two megawatts out of your power demand. So is that all there is to this? Not that that's no. not a... No, there's, so we're just at the beginning of it because right now the electrical grid around the world is still highly centralized with highly centralized production. Um, what's happening is uh, there's a conversations around microgrid and microgeneration right. because not only are people putting electrical panels on their house and, and setting up windmills, um, but they're beginning to put storage in their house. And there's funky forms of storage like these hot water heaters where you shift to nighttime. Right. Um, there's a, an outfit in the Netherlands that I ran into that's using, you know, deep freezers as energy sinks. And so, um, you okay. know, again, it's like they tie, they can, it, because they don't care how far below zero they are, um, the energy company can effectively look and say, hey, I don't want these guys to turn on tomorrow. Let me make it much, much colder. And then I can, it'll be a long time before they need energy again to stay <laughs> below their threshold. So w whatever form of storage you want to uh, right. call uh, the Tesla Powerwall batteries, um, the batteries in all the electric cars are going to become part of a resilient um, distributed generation, distributed storage that then enables uh, the better use of these unpredictable sources like windmill and, and sun where you can't control when you collect the energy. So it's, I mean, it seems like a laudable goal, mm -hmm. but for the average consumer, Oh. The best they're going to see is a reduction of their bill, or at least well, a, a less of an. Well, there's also there's also I think government mandate in some in some areas. In, in but the government energy. mandates are now under pressure because um, there's so much solar and wind coming on that literally and and at least under current regs they're obliged to buy it and buy it at premium rates. But you know what? It comes in. There's so much of it coming in in some cases that they're literally paying to get rid of it. It's like Nevada, I think, was one of those states. So now they're, they're starting to reduce those government incentives because they don't have any way to store it. Um, so we're, right. we're, we're headed for a big transformation of, of energy, but we can benefit from all this sensorizing, to use that term, um, and the interconnectivity because the, the system is big and dumb right now. Um, but but it's, mm. uh, it, it's, it's basically designed like a mainframe. It's highly centralized, very centrally controlled, um, relatively speaking, that's right. Um, and and now the opportunity is to get much much more distributed and to create 
essentially micro incentives um, to motivate people to participate. So for example, the early model on solar cells is you had to invest uh, on the solar cells for your roof over 20 years. So each homeowner had to figure out how to invest in this complex, unpredictable asset. Right. Um, and it was really unattractive. And then investors came along and said, hey, you know, uh, they saw an opportunity and of course are much more sophisticated investors than the average homeowner. And they said, look, if you sign a contract for 20 years of electricity at what looks like a discounted rate to you, but which we comfortably are, are comfortable betting on financially with our big asset play, um, we'll give you a contract for electricity at reduced rate and we'll pay for the solar cells and put them on your roof. That was Solar City's model, I think, which, and, and many which others. is now back in te the Tesla fold. Right. So to try to put all of this together, um, it sounds like, I'm just trying to make sense of this entire conversation, which has jumped all over the place. We started out trying to um, figure out what the failure of the platform fail, the failure of the IO of of what's now known as IoT is applied to. Go ahead, Frank. Uh, the, the failure of of the early IoT software platform. Right. Uh, yes. Right, and, and and starting with the example of the sensorized factory. Mm -hmm. And the failures, if not failures, but the natural evolution yep. of the sensorized factory to factories which use more standardized equipment yep. and therefore from which data can be extracted by more what you truly call platforms, sort of more general purpose mm -hmm. uh, uh, computing systems probably still mm -hmm. that can be programmed by anyone from a vendor to the mm -hmm. customer itself. Then we moved on to what the relationship between that was and the sensorized home mm -hmm. and where we seem to be coming out is that the sensorized home while relatively boring because all it gives me apart from mark saying that he can see his energy costs go down with his nest i actually have what we can see on a on a, a larger governmental basis is an ability to um monitor, control, and distribute energy in a, uh, in a world where energy is getting more expensive, mm. more fragile, perhaps, mm. or at least more diversified. Well, and, and, and ultimately become more resilient. So, right, there's all yes. these power outages in these recent storms here in the Northeast. If everyone's got a, a Tesla Powerwall, um, or you know a battery or storage, right? Um, you and and the ability to like shuttle it around the neighborhood to who needs it. So that that the idea here is as a much more internet-like utility grid, where um, you know even two homes could like share, say, the battery in their electric car for key electric use, rather than being completely cold and out. Um, and you know they've got a superheated hot water heater that might carry them two days. So to now tie this to the failure of the podcast and the, and the theme that I've always thought was interesting, which is this external factors which lead to the to the external and largely unpredictable factors which lead to the failure of a given business, it would be, and then also to tie in Frank's participation, it would be the failure of an entrepreneur to know the trends, understand the trends, and to look at the big long-term trends and to factor in where this is all going, for example, whether it's Sense or somebody else, in tying their decisions to specific solution sets and not to try to tie those decisions or make those decisions based on where the I industry think that is really going. of failure. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. I, I think it's, this be. is about platform fail. I think that this might my, my cut at it. Yeah. It's um, the creation of a monolithic approach 
to a solution, or a monolithic approach, so I connect because I can. And I think what Frank was saying is that it, it has become, let's solve a problem, mm-hmm. not let's just buy a bunch of, a bucket of sensors and, and uh, put some cards in them or whatever. Buy a solution, fix my business problem. So that's the fail. The fail he's, this is a predictive or prescriptive podcast as well. So to avoid failure, one should look at solutions, not just a, 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 a bag of gadgets. But by the way, do look under the solution and make sure it's built on a platform. <laughs> So you have to. Part of choosing the solution is looking under the covers and and understanding what platform you're betting on. There you go. Wow. Uh, okay. I think that's it. We'll uh, we'll put this on the web and see if anyone downloads it at all. <laughs> Thank you, Frank. You're welcome.